working our way through a, a series of teachings on Sunday nights. The book. This one. The book. How we got it. And how to get the most out of it. And for the first while, it's the how we got it question. And so we're continuing from last week. And that's online. You can get the study notes and see everything that you need to see. How do we know which books are authoritative scripture? And we were working through this last week. The text tonight is, uh, ironically, a text we've been working with uh, not that many Sundays ago in our morning series through the book of Hebrews, verse by verse. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So you'll notice there's long ago, many times, many ways, these last days. In these last days. And so the writer of Hebrews, the New Testament epistle, includes himself in the last days. So the last days begin with the coming of Jesus, God incarnate, in the flesh, Christmas, the baby Jesus born, the start of the last days, and they will continue the last days until Jesus comes again to rule and reign and establish a new creation, new heaven, new earth, resurrected bodies. In these last days has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. A real quick snapshot of last week's teaching. We began by looking at how we arrived at the books we have in our Bibles. The Bibles we carry to church or you have on your iPad or your iPhone. And we looked specifically last week at the forming of the Old Testament. And the conclusion we reached was that the 24 books... ...of the Hebrew scriptures... ...that's the Bible Jesus would have read... ...are the same ones Jesus used and endorsed. They're the same books, though they're divided differently. Those 24 books are exactly the same books... ...that we have in the 39 books of the Old Testament... ...you have with you tonight. It has 39 books. The reason it has 39 and the Hebrew... The Hebrew scriptures had 24 was because many of the books that we have as separate books, they had lumped together. So there wasn't 1st and 2nd Kings and 1st and 2nd Chronicles. There was one book. There wasn't all of the minor prophets with all those names that are so hard to pronounce. There was one book. So you have exactly the same text, exactly the same scriptures, just a different number of books. The Jews, of course, don't recognize any of the books we call the New Testament as scriptures. And so to them, their 24 books aren't the Old Testament. To them, their 24 books are the scriptures. After that, we studied and saw how Jesus and the apostles, they endorsed these same scriptures and limited, limited their scriptures to these 24 books. So this excludes uh, the apocryphal writings and other texts, other gospels. You don't need all the details of that. Usually they're, they're, they're uh, written around the time of Second Temple Judaism. 
between the Old and the New Testament. And that's where we finished up last Sunday. The Old Testament you have, the Old Testament you read, is exactly the same Old Testament as the Hebrew Scriptures, the Scriptures studied by the Apostles, the Scriptures used by Jesus. That's where we finished up. But of course our Bibles don't end with Malachi. We have 27 more books that aren't included in the Jewish Scriptures. And so... The question we come to tonight is a pretty important one, maybe the most important one. Given that we've already said there's a limited number of books in the Old Testament, we've excluded apocryphal writings and some others as well. Given that we've excluded and limited the books of the Old Testament to those 24 books, the same as the 39 in yours, well, what gives us the right to say all of a sudden, oh, and there's 27 more books we want to include. Do you see the issue there? What gives us the right to include other writings beyond that Hebrew canon of Old Testament texts? That's that's the question we need to look at. By what process do we, Christians, embrace a whole set of writings that are added to the Old Testament texts that have been cherished protected and embraced for thousands of years, I think every Christian needs to have an explanation for that. We sang just a minute ago, and I scribbled the words down. I asked Tom if we could sing that that chorus, ancient words, and we sang, holy words long preserved for our walk in this world. How did they get preserved? How do we pick what number of them? This isn't some kind of elective. Well, it'd be nice to know. Let's study this as a little... This is basic to everything that we believe. Point number one. Jesus came on the scene telling everyone that these inspired Old Testament books, the ones we said were the right books last week, Jesus came on the scene telling everybody that these inspired Hebrew texts were all about him. We, We simply have no way of computing, no way of calculating the, the immense tidal wave of controversy this must have caused. We have nothing with which to compare the shocking impact of these words from Jesus. Let me just give you a few references, and we'll just look at... There's so much we could look at, and, you know, there's, there's that clock up there. But let's just look at Luke, some passages in one gospel. We could have looked at all four. Luke 4, 16 to 21. Is that in your notes, Luke 4, 16 to 21? Okay. He, Jesus, came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, as was his custom, went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. The Jewish synagogue in front of the Jewish people with the Jewish rabbis and the Pharisees and the scribes. All the religious aristocracy is there. Jesus walks in. Stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, one of the revered prophets 
in the Old Testament scriptures. It was given to him. He unrolled the scroll. This would take a while with this, this scroll. It wasn't like flipping through a Bible or, you know, punching it in on your iPhone. So everybody's, what I'm saying is there's this, there's this pause and everybody's watching. What is he going to do? And he unrolls this massive scroll, probably held by others with him. And he found the place, so he's looking for a specific place. And he finds this place and he reads, not in English, of course, the way we have it. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's in the prophet Isaiah, those words. Rolls up the scroll. Gives it back to the attendant who would look after that scroll, that holy book. Sat down. No wonder. All the eyes in the synagogue were fixed on him. And here's what he says. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. You could have dropped a bomb on the place and it wouldn't have rattled the ears of the people more than those words. We can't even imagine what they were mumbling to each other as they walked out that day. Here's another text. Gospel of Luke 16, 14 to 16. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Then he says, The law and the prophets. The law and the prophets were until John, John the Baptist. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. So Jesus says, A new era has come. The law and the prophets... They were up until John the Baptist. And they're finished. They're done. Then he says a new era has come. And he links it with the message about himself. One more. Luke 24. This is after the crucifixion of Jesus. And you know how it is. The disciples are scattered. They're afraid. Luke records this account of these two that meet with Jesus. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter his glory? Listen, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures... The things concerning himself. All these prophets you've been reading about. All your sacred scriptures. They're about me, Jesus says. Tells them their inspired Hebrew texts were all about him. Elijah never said that. Isaiah never said anything like that. Jeremiah never said anything like that. Imagine... Everything these treasured, sacred, inspired Hebrew texts said was about 
Jesus. And this just blew their minds. There's more. Point number two, Jesus placed his own words and authority above anything they had ever witnessed before. So first, we just studied this. He said all their scriptures were about him. And that was just numbing to their minds. He said all these texts were pointing to his coming, to his death, to his redemption. And that was hard enough to swallow. But then Jesus went further than that. He started, to, he started to talk to them and he started to make it clear to them that things that he said, things that just came out of his mouth, were on the same level of authority or exceeding the authority of all their sacred scriptures. Matthew 5, 38, 39. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You can read that. It's in the Old Testament. But I say to you, he's not quoting anybody. Here's what your scripture says. Now, I'm telling you, do not resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. That's not in the Old Testament anywhere. Where's that coming from? Jesus says, I'm, I'm telling you. Here's what, your, here's what your scriptures say. It's not untrue, but I'm telling you this. I know what your teaching says. I know your texts. I can quote them. But here's what I'm telling you. What are they going to do with this guy? Matthew 7, 28, 29. When Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as one of their scribes. Because here's what the scribes did. The scribes would come and they would, they would find people and they would quote the law to them. Here's where you're sinning, and you're sinning, and you're sinning, and you're sinning. They were really good at that. They would quote all these laws and regulations, and Jesus wasn't quoting anybody. Don't miss what's being said here. It isn't just that they felt Jesus was a better teacher than their rabbis and scribes. That's not the point at all. The issue here isn't that Jesus was a better teacher. The different was, he was a different kind of teacher entirely. The difference was one of authority. And his authority was different from that of the scribes and the Pharisees. That's the key. The scribes, they exposited and explained the texts. Jesus just came and said, here's what your texts say and here's what I'm saying to you. And he expected them to listen to his words more than they listened to anything else. I mean, imagine that. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. Underline those words, the truth. Okay, if that is so, if this is what Jesus comes on the scene saying, if he has that kind of authority, what, what, what do we do with his words? Okay, what do we do with his words? And you start to see the issue that's coming to a boil for these deeply religious Jewish people. They already have their texts. They have their scriptures. And then Jesus tells them these scriptures are all about him. So, if the texts are inspired, 
as they and we believe those Old Testament texts are inspired, if they are sacred, and they are, then, then these people were obligated to listen to their texts. And Jesus says their texts were pointing to him. Jesus doesn't just read their texts. And he doesn't even just explain their texts. He gives them his own words and his own teachings. And so, here we are. What do we do with these words of Jesus? Because we've got our Bibles. That's what these Jewish believers, these, these, these Jewish people, we've got our sacred texts. What are we going to do with these words of Jesus? That's the train of thought we have to follow through. If their scriptures are true, and they are, and if those scriptures point to Jesus, and they do, they point to Jesus, God the Son, the Messiah, the Savior of the whole world, and Jesus comes on the scene and says and does things of such great importance, here's the problem we have. Jesus never wrote a book. Jesus never wrote a book. He never wrote anything down. He never recorded anything of his own. Isaiah, or his scribe, wrote down what the Lord said to Isaiah. So did Jeremiah, so did Ezekiel, but Jesus didn't. And we begin to see the need, we need the need for some kind of record of who Jesus is and what Jesus said and what Jesus did. And that's where the opening text tonight comes in. Don't worry, we're, we're way down the road. But the opening text, Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He has spoken to us by his Son. Those words are important because they make a link between the way God established authentic revelation in the past and the way in which we might expect him to establish revelation after Christ. So here's what he did before. He would speak through people and write down a sacred text. That's what he did in those books of the Old Testament. 24 in the Hebrew Scriptures, the same as the 39 in the Bible you have. So it was preserved, recorded in writing. And so it seems to me... This text in Hebrew says, here's how he did it in the Old Testament, and now he's speaking through his son. And we ought to expect that something similar would happen as he speaks through his son in these last days, as he spoke through the prophets in the former days. Norman Anderson, in his little book called God's Word for the World, he says this, if we accept Jesus' testimony to the God-given authority of the Old Testament, it would seem unlikely that the most stupendous event in human history, in the life, death, and resurrection of our incarnate Lord, would have been left by the God who revealed it in advance without any authoritative record 
or explanation for future generations. And I think he's absolutely right. Now, here's the question. Is that what happened? Do we see any evidence of this process of additional books of Scripture, our New Testament? Do we see that developing anywhere in anything Jesus said? Are there any clues about it? And I want to argue tonight that I think that's what we should expect to see happen, and I think that's what we do see happen. Still with me? Point number three. Jesus prepares the world for a New Testament with the recruiting of 12 apostles. So Jesus Jesus selects and prepares a group. Never to be replaced or added to. He selects a group to bear sacred, inspired witness to the gospel events around his own life and the fulfillment of Old Testament scriptures. So, these apostles function in the creation of the New Testament in exactly the same way as the prophets did in the creation of the Old. Luke 6, 13 to 16. When day came, he called his disciples and chose from them, there were other disciples, he chose from them 12, whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, Andrew his brother, James and John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. I'll talk more about that list in a minute, but these are, these are going to be official inspired representatives of Jesus Christ. Many of them, not all, will be, will be bearers of New Testament revelation. They are never replaced once the New Testament revelation was given through them. Now, Matthias was appointed after the death of Judas, Acts 1.26. But after that, after the recording of the message, there is no perpetuating of the apostolic office. There is no apostolic succession like you have in a lot of different denominations. You won't read, read your whole Bible, and you won't read of any other replacements for the apostles. They all die off and not one of them is ever replaced. None of them. Why? Why aren't they replaced? Because theirs was the foundational work of revelation for the early church and for the church today. When you look at the New Testament, you can actually see. If you think about this, you can see the way Jesus starts to prepare them for this special assignment that he had for them and their unique role in history. The the process of this special inspiration is actually signaled by Jesus, if you take the time to look at it. John 14, for example, 24 to 26. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. So now, Jesus is talking about his words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. 
These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. He knows he's leaving them soon. He's going to die, ascend into heaven. He's not going to be physically with them. These things I have spoken. Lots of things. You have the Sermon on the Mount. You have all sorts of teaching. You have all sorts of messages. All sorts of commandments. All these things that they've heard Jesus say. He says, these things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you. Well, what, what's going to happen later? But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Please understand, I have no argument. I think any Christian has a right to claim those words in the sense that the Holy Spirit comes and brings life and light and applied truth from our Lord to our lives. I believe that. I'm not arguing with that. But I do think that we will miss the primary application of those words from Jesus if that's all we think about. Because the primary application is he's getting these, his inner circle... He's talking about the things he said to them. He's getting them ready for when he leaves. And he says, you won't have to worry that you're not going to get it right after I'm gone. That this isn't going to be accurate. That they won't remember everything Jesus said. How do we know? How do we know this is true? Well, Jesus says the Holy Spirit's going to come. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. They won't just Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. They aren't just telling their own story. They don't have to worry about their own limitations and their fallible memories. This is inspiration, Jesus is talking about. The Holy Spirit would superintend the process of their texting, and I don't mean that kind of texting, inscribing to text the revelation of the New Testament. He says it again in John 16, 12 to 14. He says, I still have many things to say to you. It's interesting, isn't it? You, you, he says, you, you, I, I haven't, you haven't got the whole picture yet. I want to talk about that in just a second. I have many things to say to you. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. See, he hasn't, he hasn't died on the cross. They've not, they've heard him talk about it, but they, it still hasn't registered. They've not seen him raised from the dead. They've not watched him ascend to the right hand of the Father. The Holy Spirit has not been poured out on the church. All of that is still gray and foggy. None of that's happened yet. So he says, you, you can't, you're not ready for everything yet. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. He will declare to you the things that are to come. That's not just, you know, the second coming, the rapture, the book of Revelation. The things that are to come were the explanation, the meaning of redemption. The full implications of Jesus' shed blood. The power of his resurrection. Christ in you, the hope of glory. They're not ready for this. He will show you the stuff coming. Big stuff, Jesus says. And the Holy Spirit's going to guide and direct and lead you through all of that. He will take what is mine and declare it to you. So again, 
The Holy Spirit will be present after Jesus was gone. He would come upon, that's the word, the apostles. He would, he would show them things they couldn't digest yet. That whole scope of God's redemptive plan. The mission to reach the Gentiles, not just the Jews. The establishing of the church. All these things were still to be recorded. And these words from Jesus, they serve two purposes. Then, in that setting, they were to encourage the apostles. Things would get recorded just the way the Holy Spirit wanted them recorded. And secondly, these things are said to assure the church. Here we are, January 22nd, 2017. And Jesus spoke these words so that you and I would know that what we're reading here isn't just Luke's opinion or John's opinion or Paul's opinion, but that this was all superintended, all planned. And so here's what happened. We're almost done. The criteria for an authentic, accurate, true New Testament was recognized by the church through various periods of false letters, false teaching, and heresies, and it was all measured by what's called apostolicity, apostolic revelation, meaning the letters it would include in the New Testament would have been written by an apostle appointed by Jesus or someone who was with and supervised by one of the apostles of Jesus directly. So we have the New Testament. Matthew, an apostle. Mark, the apostle Peter's interpreter and assistant. Luke, travel companion, associate to the apostle Paul. John, an apostle. Paul's 13 letters, all of them written by an apostle. Hebrews, no one knows for sure who wrote the book of Hebrews, but we do know it was out of the apostolic circle. We know that by, we'll get to this in our Sunday morning study, Hebrews 13, 22 and 23, where the writer says, I appeal to you brothers, bear with my word of exhortation for how I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. So it's Timothy in the apostolic circle. James Jesus' brother, called an apostle in Galatians 1.19. First and second Peter, an apostle. First, second, and third John, an apostle. Jude, brother of James, Revelation, an apostle. And so it just quickly becomes obvious that to hear these writers was to hear the words of Jesus himself. Let me give you a text that's not in your notes, but it's really a fascinating one if you want to scribble it in. I just did this just, just as the service was starting. In Hebrews chapter 2, the first three verses, you have these really interesting words. The writer wants to give this caution that, that what's written, what we read, what we hear over and over again, it's very easy to hear it too lightly. ...and to not give it the kind of attention it deserves. And so he writes, Hebrews 2, 1 to 3, with this warning. Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard... ...lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable... ...and if every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution... ...so if under the law, he says, if people didn't listen to the law in the Old Testament... ...there were consequences to it... 
He says, how shall we escape? We're not under the law in the Old Testament. We're New Testament believers. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? He says, and here's the important part. It was declared at first by the Lord. Who's that? Well, it's Jesus. It was declared by Jesus. And it was attested to us by those who heard. It's just a, it looks like an insignificant little phrase, but it's not. These people, most of them, the writer of Hebrews, know they never heard Jesus. They never heard Jesus say a word. They never met him. But he says the message was first declared by Jesus himself, okay? People heard him. They were right there. He says, that's not how you heard it. How did they all hear? How do you hear the message? He says, and it was attested to us by those who heard. There were people who heard Jesus. And they came and then they shared the message. It's that chain of apostles recording what they heard, what they saw... And the implication of this text of Hebrews is it is no less authoritative and no less reliable coming through the apostles than hearing it from Jesus himself. I think that's a striking text. And so here you are and some average schmo like me gets up and reads the words of Jesus. They're the ones in red print in your Bible. Only when you hear it, you think it's just Don Horbin. You don't realize that it's the same as if Jesus was standing in front of you talking to you. That's quite a thought, isn't it? It was first declared by Jesus. That's not how you heard it. It was attested to us, he says, by those who heard. But it's the same message with the same weight and the same truth and the same authority as if Jesus spoke those things for the very first time. There's a lot more to look at. But we do need, I think, this fresh treasuring of the process of this divine revelation. Only, only this sacred text. Only this text can you say if you meditate on it. You'll be like a tree planted by rivers of water. There's no other book on earth that will do that for you. There's all sorts of religious books. I would never deny it with all sorts of moral principles about loving people and being gracious and being forgiving and uniting our hearts and the brotherhood of mankind and the importance of love and honesty. There's billions of sacred texts all over the planet with great moral teaching. But that's not what we need. We need the shed blood of Jesus. We need his grace. We need the new life and touch of his Holy Spirit. And you can't get that anywhere else. I never wanted this just to be a series aimed at our heads. It does start there, understanding. But it's heart truth. And if you long for the life and love and transforming power of Jesus to be in you, I want to tell you that there's only one way that that's going to happen. There's only one way that the life and love and presence of Jesus is going to deepen and grow in your heart. There aren't four ways or three ways or two. There's one. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. 
If anyone does not abide in me, he is like a branch that withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire. Okay, so how is this going to happen, abiding in Jesus? And it's amazing to me the things that he doesn't list, because there's so many important things. Prayer, worship. But that's not where he goes. And this is Jesus speaking. How does this abiding in him and he abiding in us, how does that work? Seven, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. It doesn't happen just by hungering. It's important to hunger, but it doesn't, that's not going to do it. You can't worship this into your souls. It's his word. It's his words. The ones we have recorded. And then, of course, and then of course, the, the epistles that explain the meaning of the gospels. The nature of redemption. Are you, are you just wrapping your mind daily? A lot of blood, we sang about it. A lot of blood has been shed so that you could carry this little book to church on Sunday. William Tyndale, the first one who got the Bible into English, was burned at the stake just for doing it. And here we have it. Most homes have 15 of them. And we spend more time watching television than reading them. Oh, God, forgive us. Ancient words, ever true, changing me and changing you. God grant it to be true, eh, church? Let's pray.